Hello, everyone. Welcome to Police Off the Cuff, Real Crime Stories. I'm your host, Bill Cannon, and I have some unbelievable guests tonight. We're going to speak about uh, the Murdoch case in South Carolina, which has more twists and turns than uh, you can possibly believe. But we have some experts with us tonight. Uh, to my right in the upper right window is retired NYPD Sergeant Lou LaPietra, who is also an attorney, uh, LaPietra and Krieger. Welcome to the show, Lou. Good to see you, Bill. It's gonna be a it's gonna be a wild ride. Below me is straight out of Brooklyn, Detective Phil Grimaldi, another retired NYPD detective. Phil, welcome to the show. Thank you, Bill, and I'm very excited to dig into this case tonight. Oh my God! And to our to the lower right, we have the beautiful uh, retired. <laughs> Chief of Staff of the New York City Office of the Chief Medical Examiner, Barbara Butcher. So we're going to take a deep dive into this case. But first, if you like this show, Police Off the Cuff Real Crime Stories, please go on our YouTube, hit the subscribe button, give us a thumbs up, ring that bell. We also have a Patreon. We have some paid memberships. And I won't go deeply into this. And we just started a YouTube membership, which we already have 33 members uh, for $2.99 a month, you're the bucket. For $9.99 a month, you can polish my rack. For $24.99 a month, you're dipped in butter. And for $49.99 a month, it's heated dipped in butter. And we actually have one person that paid for that, but that's great. So, folks, just uh, also, I want to reach out, thank Duty Ron. Duty Ron was supposed to go live at the same time tonight. He so graciously moved his show to 10 o'clock. So, you folks that are watching the show, please go and watch Duty Ron after this. I really appreciate that. This case uh, is just unbelievable. And before we get into the case, I just want to, I'm going to play a quick, uh, a quick, a quick video and we're going to share it on the, on, we're going to share it on the screen and uh, you'll you sort of get an idea of, of what's going on with this case. And it really is a, uh, an, un, an unbelievably sort of uh, convoluted case. But um, you're gonna, we'll, we'll play it right now. A tale that has a lot more twists and turns. Tell me what you know about this case. Yeah, well, last Monday night on the family property in Colleton County, both Paul and Maggie Murdaugh were shot to death on the family property. Now, Father Alex, he was not at home at the time of the shooting. He came home around 10 o'clock, discovered the bodies of both his son and his wife. Uh, he called the police at that time. The Colleton County Sheriff's Office uh, came out. Also, the South Carolina Law Enforcement Division, they're on scene in this investigation as well. Colleton County Sheriff's Office would turn that investigation over, obviously, a conflict of interest. Uh, Alex Murdaugh working as a a prosecutor there in Colleton and Hampton counties. This family, like you mentioned, is a very prominent family here in the Low Country in South Carolina, particularly Colleton and Hampton counties. Uh, a member of the Murdoch family serving as the 14th solicitor for almost 100 years, 1920 to 2006. Uh, there's a lot of unknown, unknown questions, unknown answers uh, regarding what happened on the night. Uh, last Monday night at this family property. Um, no suspects have been named, no persons of interest uh, at this time. Law enforcement say there's you know, no threat to the public. So it, there's just a lot of unknown things right now regarding the case. Uh, the funeral was last Thursday or 
last Friday for Paul and Maggie Murdoch. They've been laid to rest. That's kind of where things stand as of right now. Autopsy results were released last Friday. We got those into our newsroom today, uh, confirming that both victims died from multiple gunshot wounds. But like I said, a lot of questions, a lot of things we don't know at this time. Uh, still searching for answers. You know what, Riley, whenever I hear law enforcement officials say, we don't have any answers right now, but you're not at risk out there in the public, my reporter senses go bananas because that means they know something that I don't know, meaning they know more than likely who they're looking for or they wouldn't tell us that we were all safe. And I assume you feel the same way. Yeah, that's kind of the general uh, feeling around is that whoever was responsible for the acts, um, you know, is likely known by law enforcement. They have some sort of an idea who it could be at this point. But like I had mentioned, you know, they haven't released that information to the media or the public at this point, other than saying there's no threat uh, to the public. They do think that this was uh, most likely pre premeditated. Um, whoever's responsible, they think, had been planning this for some time. So, Riley, there's a quote that um, a, a source gave to the Daily Beast, and there's that picture of the, of the lovely Mallory Beach, uh, you know, who was killed at age 19 when she was thrown from Paul's boat, and that's why he's facing these, these felony charges. But that quote I want to tell you about really sort of stuck in my craw. It was an anonymous source who told the Daily Beast regarding the Murtaugh family, they are the law around here. Is that causing a lot of rumor and consternation and getting people really wound up um, with regard to this story and, and unnecessarily so or necessarily so? You know, that's, that's a really good question. Um, you know, I've obviously been working this case for the local affiliate here in Charleston last week. Um, So I don't want to go any further with the that, but you could see how convoluted this is. Now, one of the things is um, Paul Murdoch was operating a boat that wound up killing this young lady, Mallory Beach. Now, that uh, an attorney could use that to say, well, obviously the people that shot Paul and his mother, Maggie, it was a revenge killing, this, that, and the other thing. But let's also keep in mind that Alec Murdoch, discovered the bodies they it was reported from the autopsy that they think they died between 9 and 9 30 p.m barbara i'm going to ask you you've been to 600 700 murder scenes and besides i i can't count the amount of autopsies you've been to is the science of predicting the exact time of death that accurate not even close not even close. Bill, you remember from many homicides we've worked that I'd give you a range of, oh, maybe two to four hours. I might say sometime between 8 p.m. and midnight. And that's based on liver mortis, rigor mortis, alga mortis, the body temperature, all those things. But each of them in and of themselves just gives you a range, an hour here, two hours there, a few hours. You combine them all and you mix them up in the hat and then pick out a number and say four hours this way, four hours that way, unless common sense pops in. And common sense is somebody saw the shooting at 9 p.m. or somebody heard a shot, a series of shots 
at 9 p.m. But then why say 9 to 9.30 p.m.? That doesn't make sense. If you have a, 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 a piece of solid evidence that says, I heard gunshots, I heard people screaming, or I saw her at exactly 9, a, 9 p.m., and then they were found dead at 9.30, that would make sense. But you can't, there is no medical examiner on earth who would say they died between 9 and 9.30 based on uh, a physical examination. So Barbara, part B to that question, and that, yeah. that was a brilliantly scientifically stated facts. Part B, if Alec Murdoch arrives there at 10.07, they're saying, oh, he has an ironclad alibi. That's nonsense because no one could say exactly the time that Maggie and Paul Murdoch were shot to death. That's so right. his al ironclad alibi now gets thrown out the window. Who's ever saying that? Another thing I want to ask you. So one of the people in the chat said, is it possible that the mother shot and killed Paul and then Paul shot and killed, you know, or they in a gunfight, you know, okay, corral style, they killed each other. Ridiculous. Uh, listen, anything is possible in this world except that. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's crazy. You know, you don't find a mother having a shootout with her son like that. And, and also, Barbara, the fact that one of the guns was a shotgun that was used on Paul Murdoch. And they believe the mother was shot with an AR-15. That's so, right. So two heavy-duty weapons like uh, who would, first of all, you know, unless there was multiple shooters, who's going to use two different weapons? Uh, you know what I'm saying? If it was one shooter, is he going to say, okay, I'm going to kill you with an AR-15 and I'm going to shoot you with a shotgun? Yeah. You know, I'm, I'm very, very interested to find out how the medical examiner or how the coroner um, made that determination that they died between nine and nine thirty. That's just scientifically, it's it's nonsense. So there must be some kind of video. Some somebody heard something, or you know, maybe somebody heard something, heard gunshots at nine p.m. and then someone else heard more gunshots at nine thirty. Other than that, it just doesn't fly. And as you said, his alibi means nothing. If it's based on uh, that's kind of spurious thinking. Exactly. Phil, what are your feelings on this? Well, listen, when you played that clip, I mean, there, there's so much to unravel here in this case. But uh, to try and stay on track of what uh, you and Barbara were just talking about, I mean, there's there's some possibilities in my mind as to how they came up with at 9 to 9.30. Obviously, as Barbara stated, maybe it was heard on a ring doorbell camera shots and stuff like that. Maybe there were two volleys of shots. And I'm going to get into that a little bit. Maybe it's possible whoever uh, killed these people may have only killed one. And then when the other person appeared or came home or maybe heard the shots or was let out to that area a second time, you know, oh my God, let's go see who is that. He's on the floor. And then the second, uh, the second volley of shots. So that's a possibility in here. I think there was um, 
pretty much a uh, statement by law enforcement that they believe that that's the time frame that they think the uh, murders occurred. And then if you listen to the 911 call, when Alec returns home and calls the police, he does sound frantic. Um, if he's involved in it, I think I read somewhere in the, on the internet, he was named as a person of interest. I don't know if that's accurate or not, but he does sound frantic. He does sound like someone that just discovered uh, family members shot, but that doesn't uh, mean that he's not involved. Well, you know, it. Phil, let me just stop you for a second. They were saying that in the beginning, he was a person of interest. And now they're saying that, but he has this ironclad alibi. And I'm saying if that ironclad alibi is based on a 9 to 9.30 time of death for uh, Maggie and Paul, then that's not an ironclad alibi. Well, listen, you know, uh, an ironclad alibi by who's saying that? His attorneys? Of course they're going to say that. They'll say no, no, that. The, 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 uh, the investigators are saying that. That, that came from SLED? Yes. Or, yeah. or, okay, so it came from the investigators. Well, maybe there's something, you know, we don't have – uh, access to the case folder. So maybe there is something that might be uh, somewhat ironclad. But however, you know, the, the, the time frame, they seem pretty certain about that. And again, you know, he did sound like he was uh, frantic at the time when he made the 911 call. And, um, you know, look, we did investigations on many homicide cases. The person that calls the police is usually interviewed and heavily interviewed. What I mean by that is you want to get specific facts. Uh, you know, the person can be a little bit upset at the time. You'll go back maybe the next day. You'll get a story out of them the first night, and then you'll get a very thorough statement out of them the next day to either include or exclude them as being a person of interest or a suspect in the murders, obviously. So uh, that's Louis, very important. That's uh, standard to, to interview that person. Uh, Louie, I want to ask you a question. You've read, you've seen... Uh some of the videos on this, this family is one of the most powerful families in the South. Can this influence the law enforcement responders and them doing their job or not doing their job? Without question. You know, we all have a boss, right? You were, you were in the NYPD and I was in the NYPD. And when instruction comes down, you mean to tell me you don't remember a story where some influential person, say, on the Upper East Side got a little preferential treatment versus somebody who knows no one or nothing? These folks have run that town for almost 100 years. To think that they don't have any influence in an investigation or in the way that investigation is conducted for this heir apparent, uh, this, uh, this Paul Murtaugh would be naive. I, I, I think if, if you look at, I mean, I'm, I, I have just gotten, you know, I got into this case, Bill, when you, when you asked me um, to appear here. So I started doing a little homework on the, on the timeline and, and you, you put up the, the picture before, but, you know, Phil, to echo your words, to say that this thing is beyond, this is like an onion in this case. You keep peeling back layers Every time you look, it goes way back and you say to yourself, gee, there's a lot of people who might have it in for these folks. Because if you've been prosecuted in, in uh, what county? It's Hampton County. Hampton but, County. Right? So the Solicitor General is the equivalent of a DA, I believe, for four or five counties down there. So if you've been prosecuted in the last 85 years, 
chances are you've been prosecuted by a Murta, right? So the number of enemies that these folks had, not necessarily just the parents. Look, everybody immediately says, if it were my daughter, I'd want, I'd want retribution. But I don't know how true the news reports are. I didn't do that deep of a dive. But there's reports out there that say that Mallory Beach's family voluntarily gave up their DNA. Did you hear that? Yes. Yeah. So assuming that clears them, I mean, this thing just keeps going back and back. You know, off off the air before we started, Bill, I told you I I, um, I had a quote from from the great Winston Churchill in 1939. Churchill said um, he he described something as a riddle wrapped in a mystery inside an enigma. That's what this case is. Yeah. He was using it to describe Russia in 1939. We're using it here to describe this case. Going back to, and I don't know if you're going to get into it, you know, to the to the uh, murder of of 19 year old Stephen Smith in in 2015. Yeah, we're, we're going to get to that, but I first want to get a little bit uh, to to the boating accident, and that's that's the boat uh, that crashed into a, a bridge abutment. Uh, Paul Murdoch and probably most of the people on the boat were intoxicated. Um, he was about to go on trial um, for for this case uh, prior, of course, after he was he was murdered. Which now that of course the case is uh, is just is a civil case now. But it, it's these are some of the people that were on the boat. The girl on the lower bottom is is, is Mallory. Mallory Beach, and she was 19 years old, and she was thrown into the water, and her body wasn't found for five days. Uh, uh, the upper peep folks are the uh, the other two girls, and uh, I have the names of of the of the, of the other survivors. Um, Miley Altman and Connor Cook were together. Uh, Morgan Doughty was with Paul Murdaugh, and Mallory Beach was with Anthony Cook. So. This was a really uh, screwed up night. There was a lot of alcohol. Uh, when they went to this, uh, I know it was like an oyster festival or something like that, the ride back in the pitch dark was an hour. They would have been probably better served of taking an Uber home and leaving the damn boat. But So anyway, what happened was this 19-year-old girl, Mallory Beach, was killed. And that's why people in that area are saying that this was a revenge killing over this uh, this boating accident. Bill, your feelings on this? Of course, 100%. That's the first thing that would jump out at me as an investigator investigating this homicide. The first thing I'd say was there's somebody that wanted to hurt Paul or his mom, and that would come up right away. So naturally, you're going to talk to those people, and you're going to look into that. You're going to go down that avenue to see if it leads to anything more fruitful regarding evidence or possibly naming somebody as a perpetrator. But uh, as Lou stated, they gave up their DNA pretty quickly. It seemed like they were cooperative. And um, I mean, I don't know where it's going to go, but staying with the boating accident, I mean, uh, this video of Paul buying alcohol. There's video of them getting out of the boat after they're on the way back. I mean, like you said, they stood at a, a festival. They drank for four hours. They were going to consider taking uh, an Uber and leave the boat there, come back the next day. But he insisted on driving back. So uh, when they drove back uh, halfway there or 
whatever it was, uh, an hour ride. They stopped and they went into a bar and they did shots. There's actual video of that. They were doing shots. And right before the crash into that bridge abutment, uh, there was an argument between Paul and his girlfriend where he slowed the boat down. He went to the front of the boat. He actually spat on her, cursed at her, and he went back to this, the, the controls of the boat and he gunned the boat, and that's when the accident happened. Now, the boat hit the – the. Um, I guess he must have tried to turn. You could, you saw – if you have the picture of the boat, Bill, you could put that up a second. It looks like he must have tried to turn to avoid the impact, and it hit the side of the boat. And then the boat uh, shot forward to uh, – it was a, a kind of a narrow uh, area they were passing where the bridge is, and the boat landed against the – yeah, that's the picture where it landed against the, uh, the side of, of the, the canal there. So uh, she was thrown into the water. She, they, they called out for her. They didn't hear her uh, return from any of the screaming that they did or calling out. Uh, and she apparently drowned, was found four or five days later. Uh, there was a 40-minute lag before uh, any law enforcement or EMS could get to them because there's another bridge in the area. And the kid who was making the, the calls, I believe it was Connor Cook, um, was uh, had a, suffered a broken jaw, so he had a little bit of trouble talking. But I did hear the 911 tape on that, and there was confusion. So it took them 40 minutes. I don't know if they uh, – uh, three of them, I think, were, were flung into the water. I know Paul, um, Anthony, I believe, and um, the young lady uh, – uh, what's her name? Uh, Mallory. Mallory. Into the water. But they got back uh, – the, the other two got back to the boat. Uh, uh, the young lady never got back to the boat. And so all of that occurred, and um, there was actually um, – Interviews that I saw on the internet from, uh, I believe it was um, Morgan, Morgan Doherty. Well, there was an interview of her that I saw, and she said that before the police actually got to them, Anthony and Paul almost got into a fight because he was like smirking about it. Yeah, that's the interview that I'm, I'm citing. So uh, he showed no emotion about her being missing, according to this young lady. Um, there, there was a, a, a conversation about whether or not. Paul was able to uh, get them back because of his intoxication and he didn't know the area as well as uh, Anthony, I believe. And they wanted Anthony, uh, it was either Anthony Cook or Connor Cook, one of them to, uh, to drive back. So there was discussions. There was almost an argument after the crash. And then the police got there and uh, she stated uh, that Morgan stated that uh, just before the police got there, that they were almost uh, going to a fisticuffs between uh, Paul and I think it was Anthony. So you know there was there was stuff going on uh, till they were rescued. Till they were. Uh, you, know, you know, Phil. Let me just stop you for a second. One of the things that again, when we talk about maybe there was favoritism in law enforcement, he wasn't arrested that night, and allegedly his blood alcohol level was three times the level it should have been. So if it's .08 in New York, is uh, I think driving while impaired. Well, Bill, let was, me ask you a question. If his sure. last name wasn't Murtaugh. What do you think the case would have been? Louis, it's actually Murdoch, like Murdoch. It's almost like Murdoch, like Murdoch. it's pronounced. Yeah. I mean, he would have been in jail. He probably would have had very high bail, and he might be alive today. That's probably the answer to that. But we don't know if that would be uh, the case or not, because his name was Murdoch, and it is what it is, you know? Well, you know, Louis, another thing I wanted to mention was one of his attorneys tried to blame – uh, the accident on the, one of the cooks uh, that said that he was driving the boat, the guy who broke his jaw. And he actually tried to, uh, you know, get the charges dropped and have him, him arrested for it. 
So you could see there's some real nasty stuff going on in this case. Bill, I'm uh, glad you brought that up because I have it right here. On July 7, 2021, new court documents were filed regarding the lawsuit from the boating incident, which alleged conspiracy connecting law enforcement to the Murdoch family. Now, that was done by um, Mallory's family. Based on what you just spoke about, there was some talk about, well, he might not have been at the controls, meaning Paul and somebody else was driving the boat. They tried to take the uh, onus off of Paul and put it onto someone at one of the other passages. I believe it was Anthony. And by doing that, they now, uh, the Mallory's family filed a document in court regarding alleged conspiracy connecting law enforcement to the Murdoch family. So I guess the attorneys that were representing Mallory's family acted on what they were trying to do by point the finger at someone other than Paul. I think it was actually Connor who they tried to say was driving okay. the boat. Okay. And uh, because he had grabbed the steering wheel at, on the previous bridge that he almost crashed into the apartment right. on that and right. saved the boat from crashing. So I uh, maybe the lawyers thought, Oh, he was driving at that point. Why don't we just say he was, you know, which is some dirty stuff going on. Louis, you want to comment on this stuff? <laughs> well, listen, you know, Shakespeare once said, how, what do you call 200,000 lawyers at the bottom of the ocean? <laughs> a blessing. A good start. <laughs> no, but seriously, um, look, defense attorneys are tend to be aggressive in their tactics, some more than others. Some are willing to bend the truth if it fits their client's needs. Uh, in this case, in light of who this kid was and in light of where he was going to be prosecuted, he was going to be prosecuted in the very court where he and his family ran the show for almost 100 years. Now, didn't it ever occur to anybody that immediately the venue should have been moved right from the, from the start? And, but no, here, to piggyback on your, on, on your understanding that he wasn't even arrested that night, you talk about a spoilation of evidence. What's his blood alcohol content going to go? It's going to drop every hour, right? And so you're going to get, yeah. And and then you get to the point where, you know, you have uh, uh, attorneys trying to, you know, muddy the waters. My understanding, from if the reports are true, is that a grand jury was convened to look into this very thing, whether or not there was going to be an obstruction charge. In this case, are you aware of that? Yes, yes, I was. So, you know, you, you look at, at that and now, um, you know, the, the attorney general is taking this case. Lou, this Lou, do you know, I don't mean to interrupt, but do you know when that grand jury convened? Because I have that the, uh, the solicitor, which is the district attorney, the 14th Circuit solicitor, on August 11th recused himself. So was that grand jury investigation before that, which may have caused him to recuse himself? Do you know that, Lou, or, or you don't know? I'm not sure. Okay, okay. So, yeah, and it went it went from the, the 14th Circuit solicitor. He recused, and it went to the attorney general's office, which it should have been that from day one, like you said, Lou, 100%. Yeah. So, I mean, getting back to the original point of whether or not, um, you know, who you are and where you are matter in a case, absolutely. You know, um, uh, you're talking about a kid who, I mean, they describe his family as a legal dynasty in that state. Um, you're talking about a firm that produced 
the solicitor's general for probably three or four generations. So going back to that young lady's quote that they are the law around here, I don't think it's so far off base. 100%. We're going to take a very quick break, and when we come back, we're going to talk about the 2015 potential homicide of Stephen Smith, and then we're going to also talk about um, Alec Murda and the on September 4th when he was allegedly shot uh, in the head uh, seven miles from there uh, where the homicide occurred. And there's some real doozies with that one, too. Before I go to it, I just want to thank Mandy Matney of Fitz News, who uh, did an unbelievable investigative report on this case. And when you look for real accurate information, don't look to the national news. Look to Mandy Matney, who is from a Hilton Head, South Carolina. So she's a native there. There's also another guy, a podcaster named Eric Allen, who did an unbelievable job. And the information they put out there, I mean, it's just, it's as professional as all hell. Well, Mandy is a pro, but uh, Eric Allen's a young guy, but his 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 um, podcast and his video was incredible. So we're going to come back and we're going to talk about um, the Stephen Smith case uh, and a few other things. But uh, before that, you know, if you, please subscribe to Police Off the Cuff Real Crime Stories. Hit that subscribe button. Give us a thumbs up. Ring that bell. And uh, we're going to go to a quick commercial now and we'll be back in a second. Phil, you want to do the first one? Sure. Joe Murray, attorney at law. Joe's getting better by the day. We hope him a speedy recovery for Joe who was suffering from COVID, but thank God he's home now doing better. Have you found yourself in a jam? Are you in need of legal counsel in the New York area? Do you need a victim's advocate? Well, Joe Murray is your man. He's not only an experienced trial attorney, he's also a retired 15-year member of the NYPD. He knows both sides of the fence. His website is jmurray-law.com. That's jmurray-law.com. His telephone number is 646-838-1702, 646-838-1702. Or you could email Joe at joe at jmurray-law.com. That's joe at jmurray-law.com. You know, Joe is in the chat tonight. We're so happy because he we uh, he had a really bad, nasty bout of COVID. He was in the hospital, and uh, he's actually in the chat, so we're so thrilled. It looks God like he's going to be okay. Uh, uh, you know, outstanding, great guy. Uh, Police Coffee is an officer-owned business dedicated to crafting the finest coffees and blends, and it will provide you with the freshest coffee available. Each batch is roasted fresh by people who know what it means to stay vigilant. And our specialty coffees do not waste one drop when flavor is concerned. Our coffee is some of the best you'll find, but it also helps serve an important cause, giving back to our community. 50% of our profits goes towards helping family members of police officers who fell in the line of duty. To order coffee and related products from policecoffee.com, go to the website. There are over seven types of coffee to choose from. And again, 50% of the profits go to officers' families in need. For a 10% discount, Use OTC10, that's off the cuff 10. And again, the website is policecoffee.com. Barbara, I specifically wanted to uh, talk to you about this. And I think you know about the case of Stephen Smith. And uh, here's a picture of him on the screen. Mm-hmm. Now, in 2015, uh, it's alleged that he was hit by a car, it was a hit and run. And as a result of that, his body wound up in the middle of the road. He had uh, some injuries that weren't consistent with a hit and run. 
Uh, you want to speak upon that, Barbara? Sure. Um, normally, uh, well, first, what was he doing in the middle of the road? It it sounds like it well, his car his car ran out of gas, but there was no way he would be walking in the middle of the road. Right. So if you're hit by a car, there's injuries as uh, low down, you know, around the uh, where the bumper might hit you about mid shin, and it depends on the car, of course. And you can actually measure this and make sure it's consistent with the car you're, you suspect. You suspect, um, but there are usually the hit to the shins, to the upper thighs, with the front of the car. The person's thrown up onto the uh, the hood of the car, and then there's the head is hit by the windshield. That's how you get your big head injuries. And then as the car stops, the body goes rolling forward as it's thrown off the car and winds up somewhere on the side of the road. I don't think I've ever seen somebody land flat in the middle of the road, but I guess it depends on where they were standing when originally hit. But just to have one long laceration across the side of his head. It doesn't make sense with being hit by a car. And as you mentioned, there was some theory that he might have been hit by the mirror of a truck. Why would he then be in the middle of the road near the yellow lines? Um, it, it's, just, it's just not consistent. Um, I would have to see that recreated. And, you know, there are people that reconstruct accidents beautifully and can work the physics to down to the to the a few inches of where the person should have landed and you know there's also the the laceration itself if it was from a truck mirror it should have a pattern to it with a front knob this this two angle metal pieces that come forward with a knob joining them that holds the base of the mirror so that it can turn you should see something consistent with that a pattern injury. And well, Barbara, wouldn't there also be broken glass on the scene or some uh, artifacts of the vehicle that hit him? Um, yeah, I guess if, if you're hit by a mirror, that mirror would probably, you know, if it's hard enough to kill a person, that mirror would probably be broken. Probably. Yeah. Bill, you know, I responded to uh, maybe a couple of dozen uh, motor vehicle accidents where a person was hit by a car and uh, either was seriously injured or killed. And you, you made a great point. There's usually some debris from the impact, uh, broken glass, pieces of molding. Sometimes there's uh, actual uh, chips of paint come off the car. None of that was found in this case, first off. We know that for a fact. Now, when you put up the photo of where the body is found, it's like in the middle of the road. Now, they, they said they found his car the next day. The gas cap was out of the car. He allegedly ran out of gas and was walking along the road either to go home or to try and get help or to get gas, whatever it may be. But if now, now the original medical investigator that responded to the scene, along with the highway patrol, said that they believed that it was a homicide investigation. They didn't think it was a motor vehicle accident, a motor vehicle pedestrian, uh, uh, you know, uh, homicide, uh, not homicide, uh, accident. So they initially called the state law enforcement division, which is the SLED, S-L-E-D. The subsequent investigation to that, when it went to the medical examiner's office and there was an autopsy done, that's where the, the autopsy was concluded that he was probably hit in the head by the mirror of a truck. Now, uh, like Barbara Butcher just stated, when you get hit 
if it's a car, you're going to be have inju- you're going to sustain injuries low. And if he was hit high, which it, it hit him in the head allegedly, he had that big gash on the right side of his forehead. That would mean maybe it was a truck. But again, like she said, there was no pattern. There was no pieces of glass or anything like that. And they did say that there was a shirt that was recovered, a piece of his clothing, and it had very minuscule uh, fragments of blue fiberglass. And they indicated that maybe someone in the Murdoch family had a blue uh, all-terrain vehicle, an ATV. So I don't know how that plays into it, but it just looks like the initial investigation they conclude, I mean, highways out there doing these investigations on a daily basis. Okay. They concluded right away. This is not a motor vehicle accident. This is a homicide. They sent it to the state law enforcement division investigators. And then the subsequent uh, autopsy, they concluded that it was a motor vehicle accident and the case was basically closed. However, once they started to investigate the double homicide, which occurred this June, information was garnered somewhere in that investigation that this was a homicide investigation. It was reopened as such. I believe the date on it was, uh, let's see, July. Mm, where do I have it here? Uh, I'm trying to find it here. It was sometime after the June homicide, the double homicide, they decided that it was going to be, oh, June 7th was when the homicide was. And on the 22nd, that's when they decided to open an investigation on Stephen Smith's death from 2015, and they. But, but Phil, let me just uh, let me just uh, bring a little, something else to light. Apparently, while investigating the double murder of Paul and his mom Maggie, they found some real pertinent evidence in the 2015 case of Stephen Smith. Right. So it's like, whoa, you know, I mean, that that is like something that doesn't happen. And how did they know right away? You know, this is six years ago, this murder, that this evidence here is connected to Stephen Smith. Louie, I could see your brain is uh, going on fire. What do you got? Well, Bill, what I was going to say is, you know, it, it, it's remarkable because unless it's news to me that SLED has a dedicated cold case squad like we do in New York City, right? So, look, you, you're a homicide investigator. A 2015 case is a cold case. And unless something of significance is brought to, to bear, there's no reason to reopen that case. So, you know, they, they never, they never, it was never ruled a homicide. It was ruled. It was ruled a hit and run back in 2015. Right. They only made it a homicide two weeks after I just got the dates. June 7th was the murder, the double homicide. June 22nd is when they now opened an investigation into the homicide. So it really is. You're right, Lou. It's cold because it's back then. But it's not really it, – it, the homicide investigation started on the 22nd of June, which was two weeks after the murder. And I just wanted to say one other thing about the, the murder because I kind of draft over it before. When the police came out and made a statement that they didn't think that there was any danger to the public at large, that says a lot to me. That tells me that they felt that they had a motive of why they were targeted. It sounded like these people were targeted. It didn't seem like it was a random thing. And so they put out that statement. I think that's very important and very telling. I also want to say that the mother of Stephen Smith never, ever believed that this was a hit and run on her son. Absolutely. And always felt that... Uh, the Murdoch family was somehow involved in this. And the the son, the younger son, Buster, uh, he was he went to the same high school as Stephen Smith. Uh, there's an allegations that 
they may have had a, some kind of relationship. I don't know that, in fact, is true. I'm just re repeating the allegations that I've heard. Uh, none of it is confirmed. In fact, Alec, the father, was the coach of their sports team that they played on together. So all these parts come back, you know, and they they all seem interconnected in some way. Uh, it's it's just it's just unbelievable. Hey, I have a question for Phil. Um, do you know whether or not I, in one of the reports it said that the FBI at the time? Now I don't know if it was at the time or you know. It would have had to be at the time. At some point, the FBI in the Stephen Smith case offered to do a rape kit. Did you? That's did you correct. That's correct. Yeah. So, so, and I had said to Bill off the air, how do we go from a hit and run to a rape kit? Somebody suspected something, and I'm sure it came to light in the beginning because the mother. She said, no, there's no way that my son would be walking on a road in the middle of the road at that time of night. It's dark. And, and you know, he was supposedly a very careful kid. Uh, he was very uh, conscious of his surroundings. Uh, apparently, he had had some run-ins with people, you know, uh, bothering or whatever it was. But she she categorized him as someone who would not be walking down a road like that in such a dangerous way. I mean, if you're walking down a dark road at night, obviously, you got to take note of, of what's, you know, the passing cars and stuff like that. She, so she suspected foul, foul play right at the beginning. And she also said there was rumor and innuendo that the Murtaugh boys, the Murtaugh boys were responsible for her son's death. And that's where the rumor came that he may have had, uh, supposedly he confided in uh, another friend that he had uh, some type of a fling with a well-connected member of the community, uh, a family member of the well-connected. They didn't say Murtaugh, but they said someone, uh, a well-connected family in the community that he had had a fling with. He, he spoke about it, didn't name anybody. So that's where I think the uh, jump went to possibly the brother who went to school with him and stuff like that. So listen, this is a legal dynasty. They've been categorized as that. That's quite obvious. A hundred years with the law firm, uh, 85 years as the district attorney, the solicitor, uh, 14th circuit solicitor influence and corruption is obviously right there. I mean, you, you, like, like Lou said early on, you'd have to be, you know, brain dead to think that it's not possible that there's preferential treatment being given for these people uh, living in that town. I mean, you know, you know, Phil, I just want to, before we get to where Alec Murdoch was shot on the side of the road, I want to mention to about that. A lot to say about that. Well, I want to mention a housekeeper named Gloria Satterfield right. that wound up dead in their house as when she fell down the stairs. And that's, that's what was reported. That's and a year before, right? That's in 2018. That happened in 2018. And the, the, um, the, the Murdoch's insurance company paid half a million dollars to her family in a wrongful death suit. So now what Bill, I got this whole the point about Stephen Smith case, I don't mean to interrupt you, but I think it's very important. Within days after he was at, uh, he was killed, Randy Murdoch, who worked at the firm, which is uh, Alex's brother, reached out to her and offered his legal services pro bono to her. So, I mean, again, that's another component. There's another piece of a puzzle. This guy gets killed, allegedly, in a hit and run. And the law firm that the family's connected to, the brother, calls her and says, we're going to represent you. So there's so many things 
you know, so many red flags, so to speak, going on with this whole case. And, and, and again, now that, that lady that was found, she fell, that was 2018. She, she fell in, was it in Alex's house or the brother's house, Bill? Do we know? Did we ever find I, I, I think it was the brother's house. It was the brother's house. And $500,000 yes. was paid out to her family. Their insurance company in a wrongful death suit. Okay, so again, Louis, another, uh, Louis, Louis comments. Well, I mean, you know, uh, it's a wrongful death suit. Does that happen routinely? Um, Five hundred thousand sounds like a lot, though. Um, you know, typically, what they'll do is, you know, they'll bring a wrongful death act. But then again, if she fell down the stairs, you know, how do you prove fault, right? Typically, insurance carriers don't like to pay out. They certainly don't pay out big sums easily. Not without, you know, at least, at the very least, there would have had to been discovery and depositions and so forth, right? So I don't know what the level of litigation was, but, um, I, you know, I didn't read that there was anything. Uh, I well, mean, what would the liability, where, where would you, if you, you're an attorney on, on, on that case, if you got presented with that case, where would the liability be if she fell down a flight of stairs? I mean, if I, if I were defending the case, I would say, well, prove to me that she didn't trip over her own feet or prove to me that she didn't miss her medication that day or prove to me that she was wearing the wrong shoes. If I were bringing the case, I'd say, well, they created a dangerous condition. They knew that staircase was shiny wood. And if you walk with socks, you're going to go flying. And people had fallen there before and so on. But the point is, before a carrier takes out $500,000 and, and gives it to a, a claimant, there's usually some type of litigation, sure. um, if not a full-blown trial. Um, here, I'm not sure what we had. I don't know if we had any testimony, but clearly... If there was testimony, there would be, you know, there would be transcripts of it and and, and such. So, guys, I want to get to the, uh, I want to get to uh, Alec because we only have about fifteen minutes left, and I this is uh, going to take all that this time and more. He resigns from the law firm and he entered rehab there after a long battle has been exacerbated. He says by these murders. This is the scene of where he allegedly was shot at multiple times because he was fixing a flat tire, but he had his tires on his car were the kind that can't go flat that you can uh, drive on them for 50 miles after they're flat. Also on the scene, a knife was found that matched a slash wound on the tire that alleged the knife belonged to Alec Murda. Some way during this whole thing, Someone puts him in a car and takes him away. And then miraculously, a helicopter shows up out of nowhere, picks him up on the road somewhere, and takes him to a hospital, not in South Carolina, but in Georgia. Some of the, um, the law enforcement people that responded said he had either no wound or very much a superficial wound. Uh, and then when he got to the hospital... You know, no one gets driven to a hospital in a helicopter with a superficial alleged gunshot wound. Preferential so treatment. Of, there's, well, this, I think this was actually a private helicopter. So someone well, in the family. He was medevaced, you're saying, essentially, to a hospital. Yes, but I think it was a private helicopter company. Yeah, well, it wasn't a law enforcement helicopter. Uh, no. What I read, yeah, it, was, it sounded like a, somebody sent it there, go get the guy, you know? Well, you know, they say membership has its privileges. Yes, yes. 
Bob, no, let's like comment to a few words about let me, let me just, Bill, let me That's just get Barbara on to talk about the gunshot wound. Go ahead. Uh, Barbara. Yeah, um, I mean, I understand it was apparently a, there was an entrance and an exit and reportedly a skull fracture and reportedly some bleeding in the brain. But he was out of the hospital in less than two days and went right into a rehab. That's... You know, I mean, you you can get a, a minor skull fracture, like just a linear without any fragmentation, and be sent home. But to have brain bleeding and be sent home, that doesn't sound so good. So all, a lot of that came from his attorney who said, um, you know, that's the, uh, that's the, the findings of the hospital and he was very badly injured, but they sent him home in two days and let him go to rehab. That doesn't play too well. It doesn't make a lot of sense. No, I, I don't think so. And according to law enforcement personnel that re responded to the scene, they almost didn't see an injury at all. Right. Uh, and then, and then all of a sudden his attorney say, Oh, there was an in and out. There was a this, there was a that, but yet law enforcement saw uh, a very minor wound or a, a superficial wound at best. Yeah. You know, and then all of a sudden a, a chopper comes out of the sky like uh, Black Hawk Down, you know, yeah. comes to pick this guy up. <laughs> what, about about privilege, privilege, right? what, about, what about the timing of the shooting? Yeah. He allegedly gets shot right after he gets suspended from practicing law for embezzling money. The next yes. day, the very next day. You know, to you, to use a really strong legal term, what's up with that? Yeah. <laughs> well, listen, going back to the whole flat tire thing, that, that car, that specific car, I have the same tires on my own car, but that car has an SOS button in it. It's a Mercedes. I think it's a GLE. It's a, an SUV, a Mercedes SUV. So it has an SOS button, 24-hour roadside repair, and... It has the run flat tires, which I've experienced three flats with them myself. You can I rode almost 50 miles. Uh, recently, I was on a turnpike when, when a, the, the tire went down. It must have been a slow leak or whatever. And I rode for three more exits and got home and changed the flat when I got home. So there was no need for him to pull over right away and change that tire. That sounds like a load of bull. And then they do, like Bill said, they recovered a pocket knife, which it was consistent with the, uh, he must have stabbed the sidewall of the tire and the knife was consistent with that uh, puncture on the tire. So, I mean, it's screaming, you know, staged uh, crime scene, a staged uh, self-inflicted gunshot wound. But I mean, we don't know. We don't have the case folder in, fold of it, in front of us. And we didn't speak to him. A lot of the things that he said might also lead to what I'm alleging now, that it was a staged, you know, flat tire and a self-inflicted gunshot wound. It may not be. We don't know. But uh, I would. those are the questions I'd be asking for sure, for certain. On the screen are his two brothers. Uh who came out uh, right after this and said that, yes, he's been stealing money from the law firm and not one million, but millions of dollars he's been stealing from the law firm. And in fact, there is also a report that his wife, Maggie, hired a forensic accountant to go over the books of the law firm because maybe she's involved in some way with the law firm that she felt that he had been embezzling money. So, he also he checked himself into a hospital for opioid addiction. Uh, you know, that's always the convenient way out, Louis. As you know, law, the lawyers and law enforcement can't touch you 
when you're in drug rehab. Yes, it's the um, it's it's the best advice a lawyer could give if he doesn't want his or her client to speak to law enforcement. Once you go into the hospital, you know we all enjoy um, HIPAA, right? Health Insurance Patient Privacy Act. Nobody can talk to you. Look, I mean, the old union delegates used to tell you, hey, kid, if you get into a shooting, you got trauma, go right to the hospital right away. Don't talk to anybody. That's right. Right? That's for sure. I, I even heard that they would send guys to the farm sometimes, too. If uh, you, you got to go to the farm. You have serious problems. Go to the farm. You know? well, it's interesting. People, but, might, not, go ahead, people go ahead, might not know what the farm is, right? If you weren't on the, on the job in New York City, Billy, what's the farm? That's where you go for alcohol abuse. And it's not a farm. There's no animals there. There's no okay. farmers. But it's upstate. It's and upstate it's, a it's an alcohol rehab, so it's they call it the farm. Rehab, right, right. Leave it to cops to come up with a name like the farm. Right? There, there's right. another part of that that you guys didn't mention. They put you in the bow and arrow squad. They take your guns away. They take your gun and shield away. And then you go up to the farm and, you know, you go rehab and everything. But, uh, Bill, I want to make a point about one thing. You said the wife uh, hired a forensic accountant. That could also be her looking into the finances. Maybe she was going to divorce him. So that also brings motive into it. Uh, maybe maybe he, you know, he wanted to offer or something like that. So I think all of those things Phil, have to be looked Phil, at. Phil, you know, the next thing, uh, Meredith McKenzie, thank you so much for the 1999 Super Chat. And she wrote, I doubt he knew how to change a tire. You're right. He probably didn't. I think we all forget how to do it after a while. You just call AAA or something like that, right? All we all forget. All the guys have roadside assistance these days. Right. We, 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 all forget, we all forget how to change a damn tire. Yeah, but yeah, I mean, he was uh, the next thing. Of course, we're, we're waiting to hear is that he had a guma, right? The gumara, the old gumara. gumara are you, you uh, we're missing two elements. We're mi while we have drugs, we're missing something with money, which they, they said he was stealing, and now the gumara, and then we got a, a perfect soap opera. It's everything's there, all the components. Well, it's got a gumara is a mistress, right? That's right, a mistress. Yeah. I'm sorry, I didn't pronounce it right because I'm not Italian. But anyway, Gumara. I want, I, I want, I want everyone to know though that you know. We're not making light of this. These are real people that were murdered, you know, and there's a, there's five dead people in, involved in this this caper here, uh, you know, going back to the house, clean and glory. And, uh, of course, uh, Mallory Beach, a 19-year-old beautiful girl that oh, lost God. her life based on just drunkenness and alcohol negligence, you know. Uh, Stephen Smith, that appears also to be a homicide. And it's, you know, of course, the, the mother, Maggie and Paul. And uh, it's it's just uh, it's just a mess. It's a real mess now. And, um, you know, it's going to keep some attorneys busy for lots of years, you know. But all the elements are there. There's, the, the, there's money. There's corruption. There's all of these things. That, when you talk about even people in this chat talk about how powerful the Murdoch family is in this part of South Carolina, it's and Louis, you made a point before. This happens in New York City too. People that have money and connections, they can get things done or silence things or get favors done that you know uh, that you know doesn't it doesn't come to the light. Or you know, you may even get a big boss, as you said on the NYPD, telling you to do something, and you're like, "Whoa, wait a minute," you know. And then if you challenge that, you're going to wind up walking a foot post on Victory Boulevard in Staten Island, right? 
Mm-hmm. Good point. Good point. Yeah. So, well, I had a chief call me one time on a, it was like a, an assault case or something. And he was kind of, you know, in the corner of one of the people on the, on the assault. It was like a cross complaint. And I found out, I come to find out that the guy, he faked uh, his tax returns to get this apartment. He, he was all a con artist. He was a rent, you know, professional rent dodger. So I called the chief up. I said, listen, do a little homework on your guy here. This guy, it's not going his way. And he's a bad guy. And thank God everything, you know, went the right way. I, I helped out the people that he was trying to scam. So there's a hundred percent that you get influenced by uh, people in high places. A hundred percent. Jessica Shades, thank you so much for the $2 super chat. All you folks in the green font, you're members of the Police Off The Cuff YouTube channel, you're our channel members. Thank you so much for doing that. Uh, you know, this stuff, believe it or not, costs money to produce this show. And we, you know, we so appreciate uh, your support. Jennifer M., she asks, do you think it's possible that Papa Alec could have killed them to cover up the money laundering or theft and the boating accident, used two guns to make look like more than one person, or to shut them up? I think anything's possible. If any of us here have learned anything in law enforcement, is that never to say never. Because, you know, uh, as they say, truth is stranger than fiction. And reality, you couldn't write. If you were a writer and wrote this story, people would say, come on, you got to be kidding me. There's too many moving parts here. Yeah. But look, guess what? This is this is truth, and it is happening, you know? There um, may be more stuff to be uncovered that we're, we're not privy to, you know? I mean, look, they I went into that, that double homicide investigation, and they uncovered that this 2015 hit and run is now a murder investigation. So who knows what's to follow? And uh, we're going to stay plugged in on this, I'm sure. 100%. Sunshine M. Morgan, thank you so much for the $5 super chat. Vivian P., thank you for the $4.99. Tom Cusinelli, wow, I, I, sh- I got to talk about money more often. The floodgates have opened, you know. <laughs> thank you so much. You know, we're at almost the hour point, and I promise Barbara, I, I think Barbara has plans. She's the only one on this panel with a life, although, <laughs> although, uh, Although Lula Pietri, he has a money counting machine and he's got to oil it. Uh, he's got to put some two, uh, three and one oil in it after the show because he's an attorney and he's making big coin. Joe Murray, Barbara, I don't know I if see you're going you. out, but I'm seeing some flashes by your window. I think there's a little uh, thunderstorm <laughs> passing. Yes, Joe, Mur- Joe Murray, going. Joe Murray, thank you so much for all you do for us. I'm so happy that Good you man. appear to be Good better. Man. You're in the chat. You're alive. And I knew you were a big, strong Irish guy that was going to beat this COVID thing. And uh, we look forward to you having you back on the show. And uh, no, I miss I mean, you. Come on back. It gets that's right. We all, we all, you know, so many people love Joe Murray. I mean, He's a great, can't guy. great guy. How many people in the chat and how many people that are members? They're like, well, how's Joe Murray doing? Everyone's praying for him. And I guess we well, had a lot of people praying for him, Bill. You know, yeah, I, I believe I, in the power of prayer and he's doing good. Thank God for that. I, you know, I think prayer actually works and, and it did work for it worked for Joe Murray. Uh, Barbara, I'm going to give you a couple of last words. Um, don't you wish that they had done a swab on the guy's hand to, for gunshot residue after he was allegedly shot by a stranger while changing a tire? Wouldn't that you know something, Barbara? hundred percent, hundred percent. You're right. We, we discussed yeah. that. Yes, hundred percent. That would be wonderful to figure that out. You know, and I've seen it. I've seen it. A person that shot themselves, but they jerked the hand at the last minute. You get a yes. graze wound and a relatively simple um, 
uh, skull fracture, you know, just a linear, non-displaced, non-fragmented fracture from the explosive force of the, um, you know, the percussion of the gun. And, uh, you know, it's not, not a very deadly wound. It doesn't particularly hurt very much either. But we don't know what was seen at that hospital. And I'd love to see that, that report. Unbelievable, right? I mean, a lot of uh, a lot of like cover, covering up in this case. Lula talking about covering up. Lula Pietro, you want to talk to us about that? Well, last words. Last <laughs> words on the, the night of the double murder when um, when Alec calls and he's distraught. Did they? Did he go back to the squad and get debriefed for about ten hours, or was he let go? No, he was let go. Enough said. Yeah. There you go. Who, who does that? Nobody does that. You're right. But, you know, again, he's probably protected by he's an attorney himself and he can he can just say, I'm done talking. Right. But that's fine. But but, but with, with him, it sounds like he didn't have to do that. Oh, we'll call you tomorrow. Well, just like they didn't they didn't arrest his son for the, the on the night of the of the crime either. Right. No, right. they didn't. Which is which is unbelievable. Right. So just just incredible. But uh, I don't know what happened to Phil. I don't know if his uh, if he didn't pay the bill for his Wi-Fi this, this yeah, month yeah. or what what happened or or they shut Brooklyn down of Wi-Fi. You know, I don't know what happened, yeah. folks. Anyway, this is our coverage tonight of uh, this Murdoch case in in South Carolina. It's tremendously interesting. Uh, we're going to stay with this. We're going to do a couple more shows on this. Um, you know, we also have some uh, merchandise. We got our um, our producer Joshua. And he has um, Phil's calling me, but uh, I can't really answer the phone right now, Phil. <laughs> uh, but we have some merchandise, and if you go on our website, you can uh, you can buy our, our uh, merchandise. We got some pretty cool stuff: uh, police off the cuff mugs uh, with dipped in butter on the other side. We have polish my rack shirts, which a lot of you women said you would only wear that to bed and nowhere else. That's okay; <laughs> you can wear it to bed, and. Um, Listen, again, I want to thank everyone for all their support. And uh, Barbara, great to have you on the show as always. You're looking fantastic. And uh, Lou LaPietra, I hope I never need to hire you, but you're a great attorney and a great friend. Thank you so much. Great. Everyone everyone listening tonight, thank you so much, and uh, we'll see you real soon. Good night. Good night, all.